often the first thing out of a Canadian's mouth, at least that I've noticed, is sorry. <laughs> and it doesn't matter what the situation is. Yes. Yeah. Uh, there is always an apology. Yes. Even if you're meeting someone, hello, it's a pleasure to meet you. Sorry, my name is. You don't need to apologize <laughs> during our first meeting. This is right. 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 <laughs> There's nothing to apologize for yet. <laughs> yeah. Give, give it a minute. It will come. <laughs> Welcome to wherever you are. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada. You are listening to episode 220 of the Matinee Cast. It's a movie-loving podcast on my movie-loving website, thematinee.ca. Your home for cinematic passion and perspective. I've been covering film online for a while now, folks, and I keep forgetting that with it comes a wonderful little added bonus. You see, while it might be hard for the average person to meet new people and make new friends, because hey, being social can be awkward, I seldom have that problem. When a new film lover enters my orbit, there's less awkward small talk than there would be otherwise, because you get that gateway of you like movies? I like movies. Let's talk about movies. So it was late last year when someone close to someone I'm close to entered my orbit. And now just a few months later, I find myself yelling at him during game night and draining several bottles of wine, including during this show, by the way. Dear listener, he is even gently stoking my curiosity about horror films. I know, right? He is the editor-in-chief at Dread Central, and I am thrilled to be sitting down with Jonathan Barkhan today. How are you, man? I'm doing very well. That was an amazing intro. I tried to get it just so. It was fluid. It was classy. I'm sorry. Uh, You are, no, you are bringing (laughs) a extra sparkle that is rarely associated with someone like myself. I'm, I'm a little bit like worried now about how you usually get greeted onto a show do they just say you know this jackass is here today say hi to john no it's it's more that i introduce myself it's something along the lines of you know hello there jonathan barkhan professional son of a bitch pleasure to meet you uh, i can see so. that on a t-shirt <laughs> you should, i, I you should, should do that yeah on episode 220 we will be discussing the remake of pet cemetery we'll be turning the record over to play the other side but first we need to learn more about jonathan this is know your enemy All right, now I get to sit back and just start to judge and listen. So, uh, Jonathan, please do tell. Uh, apparently, this this question posed you a great problem. Uh, what is one of the first films you can remember seeing in a theater? So this is interesting because um, movies were always something that we did in my family when I was very young. So movies have always been a part of my life. And as a result, it's impossible for me to remember what the first movie I went to was. And I started thinking back on some of the early films that I went to, and I remember I got to see a advanced screening of Disney's The Lion King a week mm-hmm. before it came out, and I thought that might be it, until I suddenly remembered that my father, my sister, and myself, we all went to the theater one weekend to see Joe versus the Volcano. <laughs> now... I have never seen Joe vs. the Volcano since. Right. So you can ask me about the movie, and I can happily claim that I don't remember a single thing about it. Mm. Because if I am correct, that movie came out in 1990. Sounds about right. I want to say. And in 1990, depending on which, if it's the first or second half of the year, I was either five or six years old. So So your memory of... And 90 is correct. Yeah. It's... It's the funny thing that we can sometimes 
remember the when and remember even a bit about the what, but we can't remember much about you know, seeing something like that at five years old. Exactly. I, you know, you can say, I remember going to a theme park, but I don't remember which rides right. I rode. Right. So. Uh, do you, like, but do you remember anything about the actual experience? Like you said, you do remember going with your father and your sister. That's about it. Um, I, I just remember that we went and I remember that we discussed it and how my father was convinced that it was one of the worst films <laughs> he had ever seen in his life. Now, I know that there is a cult following for Joe versus the volcano, a pretty rabid fan base. There's Although minor for everything, this, I think. Exactly, I I, I believe that. Um, and so this is something that I do plan on eventually revisiting, and it will be interesting because a lot of times people, when they revisit something that they grew up with, it's because they remember it and they have very fond memories. Mm -hmm. For example, Ridley Scott's Legend is a movie that I remember watching over and over and over again. Yeah. And so I will always have the memories of me being young and remembering those scenes. Yeah. As an adult, I can watch it and then I have that feeling of nostalgia. I don't have any of that mm -hmm. with Joe versus the Volcano. <laughs> yeah. What is, uh, aside from Pet Cemetery, which we saw together on Thursday night, what is one of the last movies that you, uh, you watched before sitting down today? So, uh, as you'd mentioned in that very eloquent opening, that someone who is close to someone who is close to you. Yes. That person, of course, is my girlfriend, Ariel Fisher, who was on episode number... Uh, you're going to need to give me a minute on that because she's one of the league <laughs> leaders in how many episodes she has been on. But please continue. Yep. So anyways, um, what happened was last year I showed Ariel uh, the latest Mission Impossible film, Fallout. Right. Which I'm a huge fan of. I absolutely love. Yep. I think it's a fantastic movie on top of being probably my favorite in the Mission Impossible franchise. And... When I was recently in Austin for South by Southwest, I went to a used, you know, video game, movie, Magic the Gathering kind of store, mm -hmm. and I bought the box set of the Mission Impossible films on Blu-ray. And over the course of three days, we marathoned them all. So a couple things. First of all, Ariel was last on episode 213, which is our Mammoth Year in Review uh, episode back on New Year's Eve. Uh, so that was her last appearance. Prior to that, actually, she was also on last summer when we talked about 8th grade on episode 205. Uh, Mission Impossible, the whole series is kind of nuts because it's one of the few series that seems to kind of still be getting better. As it goes, like, yeah. I actually kind of proclaimed that series dead to rights around the time of number three, which was kind of the time that Tom Cruise's career sort of started to careen and, and his Scientology really yeah. started to bubble up. But I, I don't really know how to explain it besides the fact that they started to really get some interesting storytellers into the mix with people like Macquarie and people yeah. like, um, uh, uh, oh, was it Brad Bird did number four, didn't yep. he? Um, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm down. Every time they make one of those movies, I go. I, oh, I, if absolutely. you had told me after three that I would be even half interested in four. I, th I think that's interesting because three for me was a, was when I started to really take a deep interest. I saw the first one in theaters mm -hmm. and I had a blast with it, but I was very young. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed it. Now looking at it, I recognize the flaws, but I also think that there are some amazingly thrilling uh, set pieces mm -hmm. during the movie. The suspension sequence in CIA yeah. headquarters is fantastic. And the entire 
segment where Tom Cruise and John Voight are on top of the train. Oh yeah, is fantastic. It's, yeah, it's. I even love the Harry, I even love the conversation with Harry Cherney in that uh, that restaurant with all the fish tanks. Yep, the you aquarium. Know, like, yeah, it's it's cut in a really wonderful way that just keeps turning that tension up like one click at a time. Yeah. Um, but and yeah, the the, the more recent the ones, uh, Rogue Nation and uh, Ghost Protocol, and Ghost Protocol, Fog. they're they're incredible. They're films. really great. But the thing is, it was number two that actually made me think that the franchise was never going to come back. What do you have against Doves? Uh, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was John Woo. And the thing is, I grew up watching a lot of John Woo's films. Uh, Hard Boiled, The Killer. These were films that I grew up loving. Yeah. And so when I heard that John Woo was going to do Mission Impossible, it was like, that's amazing. Yeah. The, the second one, the problems were in how the action was portrayed. Everything would ramp up and then suddenly slow-mo from seven different angles. Right. The... The timing of the whole movie was off. The characters were uninteresting. The villain was laughable at best. <laughs> and then three comes along, and it's Philip Seymour Hoffman, yeah. and he feels dangerous. Yeah. I, and, I, I must rewatch those movies. And soon. it's J.J. Abrams who did the opposite of what uh, what John Woo did. He would slow mo the build up and then let it go at regular speed, if not even speed it up. Yeah. But yeah, it was Fallout that. I remember seeing it in theaters at a press screening, and the entire third act, I was gripping my armrests, yeah. and I was having trouble breathing. Like, I had to remember yeah. to breathe. Yeah. Because everything from one through five had built up to the events of six. What is one of the worst movies you have ever seen? I don't like this question. I'll say that right now, because I don't like bashing on films. I don't believe that for a second. I, I really barely don't. know you. I really don't. I always try to find something positive to say about a movie. As do I. Um, but that being said, see, there it is. The Darkest Minds. Okay, Darkest Minds. I haven't even heard of. So tell people about that. Opus. Darkest Minds was based on a young adult novel series set in a. It's one of those cookie cutter plots it's a dystopian future oh, there okay. is a some sort of a plague that kills off a lot of children but the ones that aren't killed somehow develop superpowers and then they're broken into different groups based on color so different colors have different abilities and there's a young girl who uh, is able to hide the fact that she has these super abilities and then she somehow escapes from a some sort of military facility with the help of Mandy Moore, and she goes off to try and find her home. And then it's you know the the rebellion of the people that think these children should be allowed to live versus the big bad government and military complex that are stopping these kids, and it's. Horrible. It's <laughs> why now? Why did you find it so egregious? Like, you're not selling it for sure, so I'm certainly not curious about it. But what what about it hit you like right where it counts and 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 left you left such a bad taste in your mouth? It's just amateur in every single way. The script is poorly put together. The cinematography is flat and uninteresting. The editing is a nightmare. There are segments in the film that don't move the story along. They're just there to fill up the runtime that already should have been cut down. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are storylines put into the film that have no need to be in there. 
Hmm. There's a random sexual assault subplot hmm. that never amounts to anything wow. and is only put in there to make the main character, this young woman, feel ill at ease. Oh, and if man. that's the only way that they can make a young woman feel ill at ease, yeah. then the writers really need to go back to writing school and find other ways to make a young woman feel ill at ease. Such as, for example, just being in a really sketchy area <laughs> where there are people doing sketchy things. Yeah, or you know, not to mention the fact that you're in a dystopian future, you're already going to be ill at ease. There you, you go. Know, every character in this movie should be ill at ease. It's really kind of disappointing because as you've been talking, I've been familiarizing myself with it. And as I look at the poster, I do remember its existence. I did not yep. see it. I'm, I'm lucky enough that I can skip this kind of thing if I don't want to. Uh, watch the movie, but it's, uh, you know, the, the, the people around it... I always kind of hope with something like this, because you said it yourself, it's based on a young adult novel. Mm -hmm. Presumably, if it, if it gets translated into screen, it's a successful young adult novel. But you always kind of think to yourself, if you're going to take a property and adapt it, take that moment and adapt it. Don't just take it and, and cut and paste it straight to the screen. Yeah. Mine it for its core ideas and find a way to do that in a new way that maybe it couldn't when the writer was just trying to sell their work or a way that it couldn't just because of the medium and actually make it better. Um, you know, like speaking of one of the worst movies I've ever seen, yeah. uh, the first Twilight movie. Okay. I have not seen a single one of those Keep it that films. way. Please that's, keep it that's that That's what I plan and I, But here's the thing. I actually sat down wanting to enjoy it. I read the first sure. book. The first book is not for me, but I finished it, and I thought, I know who it's for. It's for what it wants to do. It's doing its little thing. But I thought to myself, there is an interesting story in here that you could probably tell if you wanted to. And when they decided to adapt it onto the screen, I thought they might be able to do some of the things that they couldn't do on the page. No, no. If anything, they actually made it more safe mm. and tamped a lot of those things down. And I thought to myself, well, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you just take that moment and, and, and sit down with the author and say, what did, what did you think about doing that we can maybe pull on those threads and really, really, you know, take this to somewhere new? What is a classic or essential movie that you have not yet seen, sir? <sighs> It's a safe All right. space. It's this okay. is a safe space. I recognize, is, but I, I, as I explained to Ariel, she will, she will be shocked when this answer comes forward. I have never seen in its entirety Casablanca. <laughs> okay, um, and I'm like, you're not. You're not like deliberately avoiding. No, it not anything. at all. Not you at all. Just it's never... just, it's just an opportunity never arose. Hmm. Um, there, it's. Just one of those situations where I often found myself in a place where my time, my movie watching time, needed other sorts of films. Okay. So as I got more and more into my professional career, I essentially had to start watching more and more horror films right. so that I could fill in the gaps here and there, so that I could be caught up on the latest trends and the latest discussions. And as a result, non-horror films took a little bit of a step back. And that's something that I'm trying to rectify now. I'm trying okay. to make sure that I set aside the time okay. to enjoy non-horror films. Because yes, while horror is my career, I am also someone who loves film. Mm -hmm. So I want to be able to enjoy film outside of one genre. I mean, you're a writer. So even, it, like, if nothing else, I believe that when you do... And, and the, other, the other thing is, like, speaking about this kind of thing, I believe that Casablanca is a when, not if 
kind of situation the way you the way you describe yes. it when you watch it from beginning to end i feel like you'll enjoy it if nothing else from the perspective of the writing of it mm -hmm. um not just the big moments that everybody knows of you know here's looking at you kid yep. and hill of, you know and all the gin joints and all the worlds why did she walk into mine but there's all these great little throwaway moments that are that just still just sing so amazingly well like rick is sat down in front of the nazi officers when they first come into his cafe and they ask him what's your nationality and he says i'm a drunkard uh, and, and and just and this, the conversation just keeps moving it doesn't even get a second to to really land and, and get a laugh like a sitcom or something would or a modern comedy would he just i'm a drunkard and it keeps on going but you're like wait what and, and mm -hmm. that kind of thing it's and the movie is dotted with it so often um it's funny actually i just I caught a screening of it this year, uh, back in February. They did a showing of it in um, with the Toronto Symphony Orchestra playing the score, Ooh. which was cool, except for the fact that they couldn't drop Sam's piano from the soundtrack. So even though the piano player was playing occasionally, Sam was still playing his numbers. And I thought, you know, whoever they got to play the piano on this night would have kind of been the star of the show, mm -hmm. but they couldn't really, they, Sam was usually playing and the piano yeah. was more. So the highlight of the show happened to be the moment where they play the French national anthem, um, which when you see it completely, you'll, you'll, you'll be able to appreciate that more um, and, and imagine it with like a whole orchestra playing in a concert hall. Yep. Um, I, I, I envy you. It's a great movie. It's, as I said, the writing in it is fantastic. There's a lot of little throwaway moments that are from that movie. Uh, that you will enjoy whenever you do see it. Now, for any the rhyme or question. reason, <laughs> what is a movie that for any rhyme or reason you wish you had made? This is an interesting one because here we're talking about a book to screen adaptation. Mm -hmm. For me, a film that I always wish I'd been able to make is actually a video game to okay. film adaptation, and that's Silent Hill. Oh, man. Okay. So I have been a Silent Hill fan for the entirety of the franchise. I played the first game when it came out. How long ago did that first game come out? That was in 99, I want to say. Okay. And it was after Resident Evil, though. Right. And there's a few of them. There, there, there's a few. Is there only the one film, or is there a few of them? Now? There's because two there's films. The... Okay. There's two films. There's Silent Hill, and then there's Silent Hill Revelations. We don't talk about that one. Okay. All right. It's good to know. That is another <laughs> one. It's Here's the thing. It is a bad film. Okay. It's there's not a lot good going for right, it. Right. Um there are little nuggets that you can pull out. Mm -hmm. But in the greater scheme of things, it's not good. Okay. Where Silent Hill 1 succeeded was that it felt organic. Mm. It felt real. When okay. Sharon goes into Silent Hill, it really genuinely felt like she had entered into Silent Hill. Every set felt organic and it felt fleshed out. The sequel screwed that up. <laughs> Every single set felt like a set. set. Okay. You looked at it and you could tell this is where the seams are. Okay. I can see the stitches. I can see the zippers. I can see the nails. It doesn't work. Now, as I look at the page for this film, my, my first question, of course, is does Sean Bean betray everybody? Because that's usually what he's there to do. No. No. Oh, no. I, forget it. I'm not he, he doesn't betray I, no. anyone and he doesn't, doesn't die. Oh, forget <laughs> it. No. Um, do you want to see now? You want to make this because, uh, like, be, 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 what you explained there of your appreciation for the source material and your yes. desire to adapt it. Yes. And that's the thing is, 
uh, everyone always compared Resident Evil and Silent Hill because they really are the fathers of the survival horror genre in video games. Okay. Resident Evil obviously first because it came out first. Yeah. But the comparison that was often made was that Resident Evil is to Aliens mm. what Silent Hill is to The Shining. Interesting. And Silent Hill was never afraid to dive into the deepest, darkest themes of humanity. Hmm. So we were talking psychological trauma, sexual abuse, marital issues, incest, uh, anything you can think of that is truly... We might have to have a conversation after this yeah. conversation. <laughs> it's a truly uncomfortable franchise, but it faces those issues... Not necessarily head-on, but in a very fascinating way where those topics are shown to be disgusting and horrible and vile, and you essentially are combating them. That's what the combat of Silent Hill really is. Mm. It's you are facing these demons that haunt these characters. Well, there we go. That is uh, an awful lot about Mr. Barkhan. We are going to move on to the main event for this episode. And as I have been saying a lot in recent episodes, it's not really becoming a trend. It's more just a pattern over the films that we have selected to talk about. Um, we are going to get spoilerific with Pet Cemetery. I, I thought for a moment or two about trying to keep the discussion spoiler free, but then I thought to myself, well, it's a remake of a film that was done 25 years ago, and that was a film that was adapted from a book that already exists. So if you are in the... 20, dark, 20 years ago. What? The, the book? The, the movie. 89. The, mo the movie was 89. Yes. And the book was 84? 83. 83. So it's, 26. A, it's, a, it's an old... Time is moving, man. Did you, did you ever see that interview that Martin Freeman was doing while supporting The Hobbit? No. And he was talking about the second film. Yeah, and this one, uh, we're going to be killing Smog. And the interviewer, wow, spoiler alert. And he goes, oh, I'm so sorry. I apologize profusely for spoiling a book that came out 70 fucking years ago. <laughs> you can cut that out. Sorry. Exactly. No, it's, but yeah. it's, it's that kind of thing. And that, was, that, that is why you've actually just nailed on why I'm going to have a spoiler-laden conversation about this yes. film is because I feel like it is a property that if you haven't approached by now, just, you know, skip this segment just and decide if you want to watch the old one or the new one and come on back. Um, sure. Or, as I said, just accept that it's been around for as long as And it plus, has. it's become a part of pop culture. It's one of those things where you don't need to see it to kind of understand what it is. Well, we'll get back there. So um, <laughs> come on back, come on back after this, the new slang, Pet Cemetery coming right up. Far away, but the cat came back the very next day. <laughs> nope. <laughs> if you're wondering why I'm laughing, we have a silent auditor in this in this episode, and uh, she is having trouble remaining silent. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's my own little torture film. Pet Cemetery is directed by Kevin Kulsch and Dennis Woodmeyer. It's written by Jeff Bueller, based on the novel by Stephen King. It stars Jason Clark, Amy Sinitz, John Lithgow, uh, Jete Lawrence, and Hugo, and Lucas Lavoie. Pet Cemetery is about the Creed family who have moved to Maine to get away from the stress and pressures of life in Boston. Their house backs onto a massive and mysterious back 40 that seems to include a macabre, not that seems to include, that includes a macabre animal graveyard that their new neighbor Judd explains is where townspeople have buried their furry companions over the years. 
Eventually, a truck kills the family cat, and when time comes to bury it, Louis Creed wants to spare his daughter the pain and hides the death from her. In light of this, Judd presents him with an alternative. He takes him back into the woods at night, deep, deep, deep into the woods where it seems no one should rightly be wandering. They bury the cat, and soon enough, the cat returns. Though a lot about the cat seems off, unnatural, dark, and wrong. Not long after that, a deeper tragedy will strike the Creed family, and the decision to wander back into those deep, dark woods is one that will come back to haunt the clan, literally, in the most terrifying ways. You and I, Mr. Barkhan, experience yes. this film quite differently, despite experiencing it side by side. Where, where you sat down, having read the book, and having seen the 1989 first realization on screen multiple times, I came into it pretty blind. When the film was over and our little group walked home in the chilly air of the spring night, I even got more of a sense that I had experienced something different. And it got me to thinking about order of experience. So, pop quiz hotshot, <laughs> what would you rather? We're would you speed. Yes. Would you rather sit down and let a piece of art hit you double barrel? Or would you rather go into it having done the homework and having a frame of reference to go back to? Always double barrel. Really? Always. Every single time. If I can avoid trailers, spoilers, information about a film, then I will. A book that you can read, a video game that you can play, a previous film that you have seen. Yes. You're st you, you still go with, I want to go in blind. I would prefer to go in blind. Okay. If I can. I usually am uh, a believer in going in as blind as possible. Watch, like, look at no marketing material, look at no trailers. Trailers and uh, still images can and often will sell you a bill of false goods. Yes. However, the funny thing I have also discovered um, is that going in with a familiarity of the source material can allow you to turn off your attention to story and turn on your attention to nuance. It, you're, you're less fixated on the what and you're more fixated on the how. So as an example for me, um, the, even the first time, forget about the fact that I've seen it several times, the first time that I saw Captain Marvel because I had an idea of what the story was going to involve, I didn't really need to worry about who this group was and who that group was and what was going on over here. And I was able to watch how these characters interacted and how they moved and, and, and whatnot. So with Pet Cemetery, I, we had, as I said, we had different experiences. You, besides the fact that you had already seen it, um, which you should put there, but you, you knew the original story and you knew the original film. So I think that you were more in a position to take a deeper analytical view and look at how it was telling its story. Whereas I was going in largely blind. I knew what the phenomenon was and the, the major beats of the story, but I did not have any idea of what or how, and I got the double barrel. Well, there is something to that because I have read the book, but keep in mind that I read the book many, many, many While you were standing in line ago. for Joe versus the Volcano. <laughs> <laughs> not that long ago, but pretty, pretty long Daddy, ago. Daddy, what's a Demogorgon? <laughs> Um, and I hadn't seen the, I hadn't seen Mary Lambert's adaptation since I was approximately, I would say, 17 or 18. Okay. So that's also, we're talking about half my life ago. Mm -hmm. um, and I did rewatch a fair chunk of it in preparation for this just to see if my memory served correct. And right. it 
does. Does. Okay. Yes. And you know, here's here's the thing: is that for once in a very few times on this show, only a handful of times, although twice in the last three, uh, we actually happen to see it together. So even though I know yeah. a lot of the answer to this question, what'd you think? I really enjoyed it. I had a no. Lot you're lying. Really? I know. How how can I, I swore that you did not like that movie? How can I spew these lies Holy from these shit. lips? Okay, please continue. <laughs> No, I I really had a lot of fun with that film. Um, although I do think that I will be fully open and honest and say that part of it may be that I am remembering the experience I had when I saw it at the world premiere okay. in South by Southwest. Um, but no, I I would I would actually argue the opposite. I would actually argue that that was you know three weeks ago now. The the, the experience yep. of it and the festival goggles have settled. You watched it again very recently with a more of a clear frame of mind. Admittedly, yep. not in the best of theatrical experiences. Yes, but you came back to it. So that that original buzz that you had at the end of your week and a half in Texas had subsided. And you were looking at it saying, okay, am I sure? And yeah, so, okay, no, you're... I thought it was still as effective. Um, I enjoyed the presentation. I the, the critiques that I did have were still there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought that there were a few moments where the script was a little clunky. Okay. I thought some of the editing was a bit jagged. Mm. But overall, I thought that they provi- uh, produced characters that were more relatable and enjoyable than the original adaptation Hmm. Uh, and even on their own were more visually engaging than what I was expecting. I I really enjoyed this movie. Um, I, I didn't. I, I liked it. Didn't love it. Sure. Um, for for what it for what it is trying to do, I, I certainly think it succeeds. I would offer that if I wasn't watching this two weeks on the heels of us. I would have enjoyed it a lot more. Now that's. I don't think that that's necessarily a fair critique to say sure. that. You're really good, but I saw something two weeks ago that was great. It's like saying, you know, I I really enjoyed Happy Death Day, but two weeks ago I saw a you know 35 millimeter print of Jaws. Yeah, yeah. So so for what it was for what it was and what it wants to do, mm-hmm. um, I certainly enjoy it. I I'm finding the interesting thing about a lot of these remakes, and I did bring this up on the Us episode that horror really lends itself to remakes really 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 lends itself to remakes Mm -hmm. whereas in most of the rest of the media of film that's verboten you know you you were saying earlier that you hadn't seen Casablanca yet if somebody presents I want to remake Casablanca they'll get yelled out of the room sure but meanwhile if you present I want to remake Friday the 13th here's your money please go and make it I, I really liked this movie. I was I was I was a little bit surprised at how much I liked this movie. Um, I you know the, the story is fantastic as as everybody knows by now. Um, the the it looks beautiful. You know it's it's mm-hmm. really it's 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 specifically dark but not dim. It's dark in the way that the woods tend to be dark when they're wandering down that path towards yeah. the cemetery, which they do over and over and over. It's got that really deep green shadow look that, that you get when you're when you're wandering through the woods and it's an overcast kind of day. And it has those, you know, crepuscular rays of sunlight flittering through, but even those are sparse because it's such a densely overgrown forest. Yeah. You really feel like this land 
is swallowing you up. Yeah, it's an area of it's an area of the country that's very very old. Uh, you know, where where a lot of the first settlers came, where of course there were indigenous people far before that. So you have just so much history on every square yard of ground. You know, is where somebody fell in love, or somebody was killed, or somebody, you know, had their heart broken. Just on and just deep in this New England parts of ground. So you have all of that, all of those ghosts that are infusing the story, and it's really really surprisingly well told um there are in if if i had a criticism of the movie Mm -hmm. it actually feels short it the 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 strange thing was from the moment we get to the real turn which we'll discuss in a minute or two things really sail along now i don't know i don't know if that if there was more in the book or more in the original film but it felt like from the moment that that real tragedy strikes to the time the end of the movie it wasn't so much at the halfway point of the movie, so much it was closer to the beginning of the third act. Yeah. That really... Which is fascinating because it's a two-hour film. Yeah. But it doesn't feel like it. No, it, it feels, feels like a 90-minute movie. Yeah. So, it's strange. Um, you know, when I think about the actors in this movie, I mean, we have to talk about Ellie. We have to talk about... Uh, Jeté Lawrence. Jeté Lawrence. Um, I mean, she's got a lot to do. And juvenile yeah. actors... I mean, first of all, I, I, I think that any... any uh, any horror film that uses a kid as as you know the, the the center of the creepiness is usually already two two moves ahead because yeah. <laughs> kids are scary. I'm just gonna say you know kids can be really scary. Um, she's wonderful in this movie both yeah. when she is just herself in this bright penny of a young girl, uh, you know, and, and just dropped into this new reality of what she lives in and later on when she we should get into it in this iteration the tragedy is that ellie gets hit by a truck yes um in the original it's not gauge it's not gauge it's it is the daughter not the son um so when she is reanimated she takes all of that talent that she's been doing telling the story and she finds new ways to to use her, her acting ability. Exactly. It's, it's incredible to see. And I actually was very fortunate enough to get the chance to sit with Jeté when I was in Austin. And she's a very charming little girl uh, who had such a blast. Really? Doing that film. Because she was talking about how she got to be this bright, happy, bubbly, wonderful young daughter who, by the way, uh, is worlds ahead in terms of performance and likability than whomever played uh, Ellen Creed okay. in, in, the, in, the in Lambert's right. film. Yeah, which I don't know the young actress's name and I apologize for throwing her under the bus like that. <laughs> but not only was the script bad, but her performance was very mm. kind of obvious. That's unfortunate. Um, She's, but she fully understood that she was going to be two different characters in one role. She never overplays her hand. Like when you're, you know, when you're told, "Okay kid, you are going to be the walking dead." Yes. You know, there is a there is a temptation to overplay your hand, to get really ghoulish, to get really gnarly and, you know, become um, become, you know, more zombie-like. She finds ways of becoming unnerving in in even just when she's getting bathed 
and her father is looking through her hair and he sees the staples from yes. like where you know where she would have been either prepared during embalming or where she may have been autopsied and she just looks back like she side eyes him basically she's like what's there you know, yeah. and just even or the way what's she, wrong, what's uh, wrong, you yeah. know, and she's she's sitting up perfectly straight, and she's not like nothing. It's it's incredible to watch. The moment that I immediately knew that this was a sinister creature was also in the bathtub scene, and it was when he took the pail of water and he poured it over her hair, and it go and it shows her face mm-hmm. smack dab in the center of the screen, and her eyes do not move as water goes over her forehead, down mm. across her eyelids, and into her eyes, yeah. and pours down her cheeks, and yeah. her eyes don't flit at all. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. Everyone would blink or would close their eyes. She, she didn't flinch. Yeah, and it's you know while we're talking about characters and performance, the other one that really stood out for me was Amy Simetz yes. as Rachel as the matriarch. Um, she is an embodiment in this film of grief. Um, first for a lost sister who she never really got over losing as a as a as a young woman. And well, now, it's also the guilt of the loss. It's not just I lost a sibling, therefore well, both, I, really, I feel both, the pain. Both, right? It's the guilt associated yeah. with that loss, and I feel like she really kind of captured both of those emotions in one. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a hard, you know, we we don't we still don't have a name for a parent who loses a child the same way that we call orphans or widows. We still don't have a name for that. And I I I, I wonder if it is something that somebody can truly embody without having experienced it. Um, you know, I obviously have no experience with it myself, so I can't say if she was nailing the notes just so. But I think watching, watching her, I think the closest that anyone can come to is when we have the loss of a pet that we've had for a very long time. Mm. Because we have the same sort of responsibilities to a pet as we do to a child. We have to train them as we have to educate them. We have to feed them as we have to provide for them. And then when they pass, it's this feeling of what did I do wrong? Could I have done better? Did I give them enough love? And I think that is the only way that we can empathize because the hope is that we will never be in a position mm-hmm. where we do have to face the loss of a child. And, and yet in this movie, she embodies that feeling, that, that dread that any of us would have, even if we don't have children of our own. You know, we know children. We have nieces, nephews. We have cousins. We have, you know, like, we, we, you name it. We have friends. We're, yeah, we're yeah, godparents. Yes, we yes. just and you don't we know want them. To, to, to try and deal with that. And... Amy Simons does an like does an incredible job of getting there. Um, I believe, like I would say, she gets there. She gets a, a deeper into that than Jason Clark does. Jason Clark still has to do his own things with it because he's the one who has to move the needle and say this is what we're doing. Yeah. But uh, but Amy Simons is the one who is really just kind of wrapped in it from the moment the movie starts. I, and I think that's a interesting commentary on. Especially in today's day and age where we talk about toxic masculinity is this idea of a father who has to push down his feelings in order to do what needs to be done. Mm -hmm. And so it's not necessarily that he's not feeling grief and that he's not heartbroken. Oh, and I believe he is. He absolutely is. We see it. The way he he presents presents it. it. That's the whole point is that he has to be the strong one. He has to be the one that says, I will... 
you know, you go to your parents. I have to finish things. Things need to be done. He also and needs, I have to do He them. also needs to walk the walk of his talk earlier that death is a part of life and it's natural. Exactly. This is what happens, little girl. And that's where it's different it's from like, Mary oh, yeah, Lambert's. This is what happens? Here you go, Dad. Yep. That's where it's very different from Mary Lambert's version because in this one, the talk about death happens before Church the Cat yeah. is killed. Right. In Mary Lambert's version, that talk happens after church is brought back so uh lewis's kind of mentality in this new version is framed from a perspective of i'm a doctor i know what i can do with my hands i know what the body does when the brain shuts down that's it yeah in mary lambert's version he's already seen the cat die and then come back so everything that he's known as a doctor is already flipped on its head. Yeah. So he even says to Ellie that uh, that he does believe that there is more. Yeah. So that whole conversation is completely different. And that's, I mean, this is a movie that is that very much does have death and its after effects on its mind. You know, and the the, sto- the story does in this presentation of it certainly does. Um, he has to be, he has to be logical. He is a scientist. He has to believe that. This is not a test. You know, you're born and you die at some time. And after that, we don't know. And he doesn't want to string his daughter along and, you know, get into the idea of an afterlife because he's a scientist and he can't prove it. Mm -hmm. And yet, the moment that he is presented with something other, he just latches right onto it. He's like, okay, you know, if I can do that with a cat... I'm going to keep on doing that. And he just abandons. It's very Dr. Frankenstein. It's, in a it way. is. It is. It is very much. And I mean, and that's, you know, I, I like that this movie has death on its mind and mm-hmm. everything from the, you know, the, that macabre processional that they have when they're burying a cat to those conversations and, you know, want like this, this back and forth of wanting to treat Ellie like a grown up until they lose her. And it's like, well, no, there is nothing, there is nothing rational or logical or grown up about this key part of life it is just going to make everything messy and i may have had this conversation for 40 years of my life but i don't know what the next phrase in it is mm-hmm. this you know the procession is what brought about this this kernel of an idea in my mind about how we treat death about the ways that we honor it about the ways that we in a strange sense, celebrate it mm-hmm. in the ways that we remember it. And mm-hmm. if for everyone around the world, it's going to be a little different. Yeah. For some, it's we bury people and then we bring flowers to their grave once a year, maybe twice if we want to do their birthday as well. For others, it's uh, I know that there were several indigenous tribes that would do the sky burial, where they would leave a body out and they would let nature eat at it. And then once the bones were left, then they would find a way to dispose of it. But it's basically the earth gave to us, we give back to the earth. Personally, I want to be put on a raft and set on fire. You know what? You're going the Viking route. Yes, I like absolutely. it. Absolutely. I had a friend. If anybody, if anybody has any, any questions on that, it has been documented here. <laughs> I have a friend. Uh, his whole idea was just put me in a burlap sack and throw me in the woods. That's all I care about. Um, <laughs> no, no. I'm going out in flames. In flames? Know? Yes. All right. So I think what worked very well in this film was the presentation this time of Zelda in comparison mm. to Mary Lambert's film. Zelda being the, the sister, sister of Amy Simons. Yes, of Rachel. Of Rachel, yeah. Yes. Um, it's, Zelda has long been the scariest part of Mary Lambert's Pet Cemetery, 
At least that's what most people say. Okay. That one of the most terrifying moments are the sequences when Zelda is on screen. And for me, for the longest time, I never found her to be that scary. Then again, my personal history with physically ill family members is vastly different right. from a lot of people. I have a much more intimate relationship with physically ill family members. So again, it never scared me. This time, they specifically went out of their way to make it scary. And what's interesting is everything that we see in this iteration of Pet Cemetery is all from the perspective of Rachel. Mm -hmm. So what you're seeing may not actually be what happened, yeah. but it's what she remembers and it's how her mind distorted it and twisted it. So uh, Zelda is far more of a monster in this film, but that's because a young girl who sees this kind of thing and as time distorts her memories, she will remember it more as a monster of a disease, and as a result, her sister becoming a monster by virtue. It's an interesting subplot, and, and I mean, really and truly, it's the only one. Everything else is very much staying on the A-thread, and it's the, you know, it really taps into the idea that, like you said, like it's from one perspective. It is from the yes. perspective of the caregiver who is thinking, uh, uh, you know this this mush of things of this is somebody I love and somebody I want to take care of, but wow does it look weird and wow does it smell gross and wow do I really not want to go into that dim room one more time and wow am I hated yeah that's it's not only these things are different from what is you know so called normal it's how am I perceived. Mm -hmm because of this. And that's a very real emotion that I don't think a lot of people are going to take away from this and that they're no. not going to understand. Yes, we're going to, we are perfectly able to say that I, if I were to see something abnormal, mm -hmm. I would be able to understand these feelings. What they don't get is the inverse of that. Right. What they don't get is that this person who is going through this pain and this trauma and this hurt is going to see the world around them yeah. in a completely different way. And it, re it really underlines what Ellie goes through and, you know, when Ellie's brought back. Yes, you know, Ellie, absolutely. Ellie's brought back and, she, you know, I mean, she could very well say, I don't really think she does. I think she's said, she might say it in not so many words, but she does wonder and you can really tell. She's like, why am I here? You know? Yes, she absolutely does ask, uh, where am I? Yeah. And there because is, I can and tell by the way you're looking at me, happened. I'm not supposed to be here, yes. and you're not looking at me the way you normally look at me. And that scene and that, is perfectly shown when uh, when Lewis puts her to bed, mm -hmm. and she asks him to stay. And if you remember, he lays down, and the look on his face is, I made a huge mistake. Yeah, yeah. Everything is wrong. And when she curls up to him... And says, I love you, Daddy. And he whispers back, I love you. That is when you see the tear fall down his face. And he is fully aware. Yeah. And it is brought into... And he is... that is There's a confirmation. Mm -hmm. There's a confirmation to that feeling. When he goes downstairs the next morning. And he hears the Sugar Plum Fairy. Yeah. And he sees Jete. He sees Ellie dancing. Yeah. Just as she had danced before when Judd came over and the house was so full of love, Church leapt up on Judd's lap and he was like, oh, look at this lovely cat. Yeah. And Ellie comes up, she likes you. Oh, and I like her. Yeah. And folks, this was the first you know, great home-cooked meal I've had in a while. This is the ideal 
mm-hmm. that you want to have. This is the most wonderful kind of experience you want to have. And so he sees her dancing like she danced before yeah. when everyone is happy. But then she smashes something. And before that, you saw, as he's looking at her, he puts his hands over his face. He's smiling, this is my baby girl. All those fears I had were for naught. Yeah. I was wrong. It was the shock of me seeing my daughter again. Nope, she broke something, something is off. Yeah. And then she breaks it again. And then she breaks a third thing, and he has to scream at her like he never screamed at anyone Yeah. in the film. The only time he screamed like that was out of fear and love towards Gage. Yeah. When Gage was running to the road. Speaking of, what do we make of the switch? Now, I've got to take mm-hmm. it from a completely abstract point of view of, you know, being told that it was Gage, not Ellie, that was mm-hmm. killed in the original story, yes. in the original film. Um, you know, you had seen that play out and you had read that play out. What do you make of the, the, the decision to switch the children, their ages, their genders, and make it now it's Ellie who dies? I think when it comes to children, that gender in a way doesn't necessarily matter because at that point, both of them are so young that gender doesn't really play too much of a role, at least in my mind. Mm -hmm. What I do think is most important is the age. You've got Gage, who's very young. He's a toddler. He's two, maybe three years old. And then you've got Ellie, who turns nine. She, spoiler alert, dies the same day as as her ninth birthday. And what makes it interesting is, again, coming back to what we said earlier, that the discussion of death happened after Church died, but before Gage died in Mary Lambert's film. Mm -hmm. So Lewis was already swayed tremendously. In this film, it is the discussion of death happened before Church died. Church, by the way, we should describe, is the cat. Is the cat, yes. Who kind of, uh, the infamous... More or less seals every scene that he's in. Oh, yes. The star of the show is one is 100%. It's been a great spring. 100%. On screen. Uh, Church. Say, yeah. And if anything, this proves to me that the Academy needs to have an award for, for, best, for, best, yeah, okay. for best Critter. I love yeah, like, it. Yeah. <laughs> but I think what makes the death of Ellie far more impactful and then far more interesting is that Lewis was able to have that discussion with her. Mm -hmm. And so it's not only him coming to terms with his views on death and what happens afterward. It is on Ellie, who is so young and is scared of death, not on her behalf. She was never worried that she would die. Yeah, She was always worried about what would happen with church, with animals. And so she never knew that church had died and was brought back. But then she died and was brought back. And suddenly church made all the sense in the world, but everyone else didn't. Mm. I think that makes it a far more interesting decision because you can't have those discussions with a toddler. A toddler doesn't understand the concept of life and death. A toddler is more interested in when am I going to be able to sleep, watch Paw Patrol, and get my next snack. Yeah. I agree with everything you're saying and I would actually go one further what I believe makes this switch um, terrifying really Mm -hmm. is that a toddler really has very little comprehension sure Uh, you know a toddler like you said just knows Paw Patrol snack nap yes repeat Um, they have no concept of time they have no concept of consequences a nine-year-old while of course still very new to a lot of these ideas has an idea of what they are doing and why they are doing it and whatnot. So when Ellie starts to take out vengeance and starts to 
let the darkness that that cemetery instilled upon her mm-hmm. when she was buried there override her mortal um, compass, her moral compass and her mortal compass, uh, if you will. Um, that is a decision that, that, you know, a child can make and has made. And it's, it's freaky that you know that there there could be a kid who decides that she wants to act out and knows now this is how I can act out that's really going to piss my parents off. Yeah. You take that instinct and you apply it to something lethal. That's terrifying. You know, the fact that she can take a scalpel and take it to somebody's Achilles, the fact that she can take a knife and you know dig it into a person's abdomen. That and it's not and, and it's and it's not just demon seed thinking it's funny and not actually understanding it's like no 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 this is a kid that we know understands death and understands what has happened to her and we and saw is saying how, screw you all i'm taking you with me and we saw how good she was and this is the same kind of child that we've seen in the first half be so full of love yeah. and light yeah. and life she knows what it means to be good mm-hmm. which means that her descent into darkness is all the more tragic yeah. Because she came from such a place of love. Yeah. Yeah. And not only is she willing to do physical harm, as you said, to slice open an Achilles tendon, to stab someone repeatedly, but she's willing to say the most horrible things. It, in a way, it calls back to the exorcist. It's when Regan looks no. at Father Karras and says, your mother su- sucks, you know, yeah, in, in hell. hell. But actually, I'd say what she says is even more terrifying because she's she's on point. She's on brand. She's not actually trying to be hurtful. She's just stating fact. She's not saying, Grandma's down here with me turning tricks. Although I'd pay to see that movie. Um, she is saying, why am I here? Hug me, mommy. What's going on? You know, like she is. But she, then she turns and says, there is a hell and yeah. you are going there. Yeah. I've been there. It's horrible. Like she is specifically bringing up the worst fears yeah. for a lot of people. Remember the scene where right after she slices Judd's Achilles tendon and suddenly when she lifts the mask from the funeral procession that mm-hmm. we saw earlier... It's Norma. Yeah, it's his wife. It's his wife. And she is specifically manipulating him into pain. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why it's so interesting because, again, she, Ellie, loved Judd. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She loved him. Yeah. And now she is purposefully doing everything she can to hurt him as much as possible. Yeah. You put this idea in my dad's head. You let me, you know, let me repay the favor and put an idea in your head. And oh, by the way, enjoy your ankle. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah no, it, it, it's it's a really well made movie. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know how how much it's gonna like grab on. You were like, I mean, when we were walking to the movie, you said how much money is this gonna make? I don't really know. Um, I, I don't know if it's completely as well executed as as I said, like you know, something like us, or even you know, to kind of keep things. Uh, in a fair fight as something like it. Yes. And I also think it's a far more faithful adaptation of King's tone. Yes. Because King has always said that Pet Cemetery was his scariest novel. Yeah. And this is actually a scary film. The choreographed scene of Ellie's death, I think was wonderfully done because Lewis runs up, he grabs Gage and the truck swerves and then suddenly the rig separates yeah. and that piece comes forward and she stands up and she looks and the, everything kind of goes quiet. Yeah. 
there is silence. Yeah. There's no swelling of emotional music. You don't hear screaming. And then... Yeah, you don't even hear a bang. You hear nothing. And that's it. And then he comes around the corner and he grabs his head and it's still silence and he just falls down and holds her and you don't even see anything. I think it's far more impactful because we... This, it's the silence that speaks. Yeah, and often is. I, it's, it's, it's becoming... It's not becoming cliche, but it's becoming a, uh, a common approach to, yes. to, to, to catastrophe. And, then, and you know what? I'm fine with it. Yes. It I'm, may I'm, be a situation where this is how it's done now, and in 10, 20 years... It'll be done very... It'll, it'll be, be done completely it'll be different. You know? Yes. Yeah. And so we can say now that this film may be uh, more timeless than Mary Lambert's version, but time may prove me wrong. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So, you know, we've been talking quite a bit about... Um, about Pet Cemetery, and we end every review segment here on the Matinee Cast with a souvenir, something tangible or intangible. Yes. If you could go into the world of this movie and take away and keep Jonathan Barkhan, what would be your souvenir from the remake of Pet Cemetery? I don't know why, but I really liked the scalpel and the case that it came in. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just one of those weird little things that will I ever use it? Maybe to open some packages that I get. Will I ever, <laughs> uh, you know, display it? Uh, it'll just kind of lurk where a lot of my other horror memorabilia lives. But it's just a, uh, I don't know, it's something about it. It stood out as a classy scalpel. We talked We talked about something similar on the Us episode because I, I said I had a fascination with those scissors. And I have how, them. And how, really? Yes. And how as I get older, I have this fascination with tactile objects with things like compasses and watches and scissors and you know like fountain pens and those kinds of things that not everybody uses but can be sometimes really ornate but also very functional sure so i get that saying like you know here's a scalpel here's something that would be performed that would be used to great effect but also happens to be you know rather ornate and rather eye-catching so I, I i totally get your your souvenir and why you would want that i want that i don't know where i'd put it but i want it um i if i can have a souvenir from this movie i want one of the masks yeah that the children that. wear um it you know kind of similar to something that's genuine generally innocent but also becomes maleficent in that kind of context well this was something that was interesting <clears throat> because uh ariel and i were discussing this there is that moment where Lewis is kind of searching the history of the town mm -hmm. and of his property and of the pet cemetery itself. Yeah. And he sees that children were wearing these masks for decades. There yeah. was that photo from yeah. many, many years ago. And, you know, we have to remember that Halloween in the United States for the longest time, there wasn't a huge you know, marketing machine no, behind it. No. There wasn't Spirit Halloween and Halloween USA on every street corner starting September 1st. Yeah. For a long time, it was simply what can parents make. Yeah. And as a result, some of those, uh, some of those costumes were horrifying looking. Yeah. You would see a bunny, but it is the most creepy looking bunny <laughs> yeah, you've ever seen yeah. in your life. And that's, and that's the thing. It's like, you, you take one of those masks and you put it on you know, a five-year-old boy and you just have him playing out in the yard and it just looks like a normal boy dressing up like a bunny. Yeah. You put that same boy down a dappled wooded path, you know, hitting his little drum and all of a sudden it's like, what's up with Billy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, we Not rate here on the matinee cast on a scale of Billy. one to four. <laughs> Damn Billy. We rate here on a scale of one to four stars. Jonathan, what do you give uh, Pet Cemetery 2019 on a scale of one to four? 
And you can use halves. Can I use quarters? Sure, why not? 3.25. Really? Okay. I'm very much on a three. Fine. Um, very good movie. Very entertaining movie. Very well-executed movie. Um, just in the current landscape of its genre, does not elevate to where some of the others do. Sure, um, but does then again... still elevate to entertaining, very dark and very sad, more than some of the lower echelon does. I also think... Keep in mind, as you said earlier, that our the- theatrical experience was lacking. Yeah, and but that's... I'm, I'm even trying to take that yeah. into account. So I feel like a lot was... Having seen it at South by Southwest, mm-hmm. when it's the world premiere, so they put the bulb at full brightness, right. and they have the sound system really going, and yeah. it's an amazing experience. Uh, coming into this theater and seeing the bulb at, you know... 50 to 75% brightness. Yeah. And the sound system is a little bit muddy. Yeah. It was disappointing, not for me, because I'd already seen it. It was disappointing for you and for the people that we were with, because I was upset that you weren't going to get the same experience that I had. And I knew what was coming. Yeah. And I knew that a lot of the scares were built in the dark. Okay. And when you have a fully... I still find it terrifying. Like, don't get me wrong. I still yeah. find it terrifying. I still find it a well-executed film. I'm, you know, it's just there are some things that it, 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 yeah. it, it can go further. It could have done more. It, you know, as I said, we, but in I a way, should it have? I don't know. If like that's a different movie. Like I got, I got to critique yeah. what it was given. I, I said, but if it, I said, said it felt short. But no, it had room. But to, but didn't? But do you, you say that it could have done more? Mm-hmm. What could it have done more? It could have done more by the when once Ellie is turned. Yes, it, it could have done more with her possessed. Okay. Uh, you know, like that that sails along very very quick. So you'd like to see more of her being possessed but not necessarily being the evil attacker. You yes. want to see her more as this is possessed Ellie trying to give, live in a world yeah. of living or just people. give me five more minutes with Rachel give me five more minutes with Judd where they have to face their mistakes yes. because that okay. to me that to me is where the real darkness of this movie is it's not her like she's she's an innocent bystander in all of this it's the parents and the neighbor and what they have done to the child to the world to themselves you know there's it's, it's interesting because I read a script a version of the script uh, several months ago that is very different oh. from the film that we saw here. First of all, an interesting difference was that there were going to be several shots that were from the point of view of church. Okay. So we would have seen through the cat's eyes. I would have enjoyed that movie. It would have been interesting. Yeah. Um, then what was also different was, at least from the script that I read, was that Rachel lived. Oh. Rachel did not... This is a big spoiler. I do apologize to any listeners. But Rachel was not killed and then buried in Pet Cemetery and brought back. Rather... Um, Lewis, he was killed, and Rachel was the one that took him into Pet Cemetery. And the final shot was of Kate, uh, was of Gage alive and Ellie evil playing together in the yard. See, I want to see that As Rachel is sitting on the porch, I see, that's and we see the is, shadow yeah. of Lewis see, come up, and Rachel turns and smiles. Yeah, no, I want to see that movie. That to me is a, is a better movie than what we got. But I didn't make that movie. Hey, maybe you think that uh, we're both crazy that this is a terrible movie. Maybe you think that we're being far too hard on it, and this is a perfect movie. Let me know, Ryan at the matinee.ca, Twitter, or on matinee underscore ca, or Facebook.com/slash dark matinee. What do you think of this 2019 remake? of Pet Cemetery. We are going to take a quick break here and uh, come back right after this to talk about some other movies. Uh, so come out back. We'll uh, flip the record over and play the other side. I thought it I've been brought up the past. 
Welcome back. He's Jonathan. I'm Ryan. It's episode 220 of the He's Madden Ryan. Cast. I'm Jonathan. What did I say? Episode 220. You said it just fine. I just wanted to <laughs> reaffirm it. <laughs> I like that. I don't think I've had a whole lot of reaffirmation <laughs> on this show. We've been talking about Pet Cemetery uh, as our main uh, review. Um, we're going to dive a little deeper down the rabbit hole uh, right now. Uh, why don't you get us started, sir? We, I mean, we've been throwing around a lot of titles already yes. uh, on this on this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, what is a film that somebody could go on to if they, uh, if they came away from from, uh, from the new version of Pet Cemetery. I actually have three films that I've okay. written down. Sure. Uh, if you want to go into another... So start with one. We're going to go back Let's start, and forth. Yes, exactly. I'm going to start with the first one. If sure. you want to do a fun Stephen King adaptation, if you want to do something that is well done, it's scary, it's thrilling, it's fun, one that not a lot of people discuss anymore these days, 1408. Oh, okay. I remember, I remember that, but I haven't seen it. And I believe... That was, now I can't remember, was that a short story in a longer compendium or was that its own book? I think it was a short in a longer compendium. It was in like Everything's Eventual or one of those. One of those, yes. Short, um, King has written enough short stories that he we He has, and I mean, it's funny because really King, I actually, my experience with his writing is more of his like uh, 96 to 2006 kind of area. I know that that is the most specific bracket of time I have ever <laughs> dropped ever for no reason really it's my my most experience with King is from books like Hearts in Atlantis and from a Buick 8 and Bag of Bones and those kinds of things he was interesting he was kind of well past his real heyday he was doing yeah. some stories that were a little bit more mature still often very chilling and not a lot of them adapted um, everything's eventual was in that space of time and yeah, 1408 I believe was one of the shorts in that book you're uh, you're a fan of, of that one of that it's movie? you know John here's Cusack a, is all I remember John Cusack Samuel L. Jackson I think it's a fun film I'm I'm not gonna say that it's a phenomenal movie but it is creepy it is chilling it's a lot of fun I okay. really enjoyed it and it was actually the third tale in the audiobook collection titled Blood and Smoke, released in 1999, and in 2002, it was collected in written form as the 12th story in King's collection, Everything's, Everything's Eventual. Eventual. There we go. <laughs> I think i got to reread Everything's Eventual. It's been a while. So, it's... But the thing is, it's just a very fun movie, and it plays on expectations. It throws the audience into a world where they are uncertain of what they're seeing, Okay. And does it play thematically into the same universe as Pet Cemetery? Absolutely not. Mm. But it's still King. Right. And you're going to get a fun experience out of the two of them. It's it's funny because I find like I mean, we're now Oh Lord, we're more than forty years into Stephen King adaptations on film and some of them have been incredible. Some of them are like in the canon of the great horror films others are absolute garbage and should never be spoken of itself there's one that is either garbage or canon depending on who you ask about the shining yeah uh, that's an interesting one because it has been kind of put into the upper echelon it's the pinnacle of horror for some people i know that i adore mm-hmm. kubrick's version of the film and yet king hates it yeah he really hates it. Yeah, he, he despises it and, and just wants nothing to do with it. He wrote, I mean, one of the one of the books that I did read in that 1996 to 2006 era was Bag of Bones, where his mm-hmm. author, the, the, the central character is an author who is going through a deep 
spell of writer's block. And in order to get around it to his publisher, he is handing the manuscripts that he wrote at the start of his career and just locked away. And he's now, like, he, he just kind of kept them as, like, seed money in case something ever went wrong. Yeah. And as it happens, these manuscripts are getting just phenomenally well received and and every all of these critics are talking about how he's really matured as a writer and look at how far he's come and look at how much he's turned meanwhile he's thinking to himself this is shit that i wrote when i had no idea what i was doing and you're lapping it up and i'm thinking in my head reading this book there this is a little bit too meta i'm thinking you know like you're, yeah. you're having like, a little <laughs> bit too much joy in describing this writer's plight there's a handful of authors from the second half of the 20th century who've had this kind of impact on film. Not very many, all of them, most of them dudes. Um, and it's, it's kind of nuts to see that this one guy who was able to crank out nightmares, sometimes fueled by heavy addiction, sometimes fueled by deep clarity, has had this much of an impact on both pop culture and on the horror genre. Well, I think that the work that he puts out is easily adaptable within reason. Because if you look at someone like Clive Barker, who makes chilling and kind of very fascinating stories, they're just too imaginative. Yeah. He takes people into the depths of hell. He takes them to new universes. He takes them to places where... To create that in film is going to cost millions upon millions of dollars. Yeah, just to make a effects. sentient car or to make a rabid dog doesn't take a whole lot of money. Exactly, it's nuts. It's I mean, it's but that's, it, but that's it's kind thing. of genius. It is very genius, and that's the thing is I'm not trying to say that one is better than the other. No. I'm simply saying that Stephen King goes into the fear of the immediate, whereas someone like Clive Barker goes into the fear of the greater kind of terrifying yeah. themes. He's more cosmic mm -hmm. in his terror, although that's probably more applicable to Lovecraft. But King is always looking for the themes that are directly terrifying. That's why Pet Cemetery, when you stop and think about it, you know, okay, yes, the idea of burying someone in an, in a Indian burial ground where they come back to life because of a Wendigo, yeah. you know, it's, yes, it's crazy, but the core theme is it's the grief of parents at the loss of their child. So I guess my only question, though, as far as a companion film to Pet Cemetery is why 1408? Why not Carrie? Why not The Shining? Why not? It's too obvious. Okay. Um, because those and are the ones that everyone has seen. This is one that we should watch. That, that not well, me as... As someone who tries to encourage people to see film and just go outside of their comfort zone, I think 1408 was a big flash in the pan moment. It was really excited and people loved it when it came out, but then they they didn't talk about it afterwards. That's what I mean by flash in the pan. Okay. It's a very fun film, but it was quickly forgotten. I see. And, and so I think people need I mean, to revisit really, like, I mean, you, like, one cannot really argue with that because it's not a whole lot of times where you're sitting at the bar with your buddies and saying... Guys, 1408, the same thing. Yeah, when you, know, you talk about Stephen King adaptations, who is going to immediately bring up 1408? Nobody. They're going to talk about The Stand. They're going to talk about The Shining. They're going to talk about Carrie, Christine. They're going to go into those films that everyone knows. But the thing is, people will often go, oh yeah, 1408, I forgot about that one. I, I, and people need to remember that I, it exists. I, I did not see it, and I, I will I will give it a look. Um, my first my first associate yes. film with, um, with Pet Cemetery is... Drastically different, and only have the only common element is the one actor. 
Amy Simetz, who plays Rachel in yes. the movie. Um, I always think of her in a film that is very strange, very, very um, sensory and very cerebral called Upstream Color. Have you seen this movie? I've not. It was the second film by Shane Carruth. He of... Mm-hmm. What did Shane do? I know Shane. Primer. Yes. Primer director. This was his follow-up movie. Uh, this one, this movie is handsome with a capital H. <laughs> it is incredibly sensory in terms of its visuals. And this is a movie that you need to hear properly. If you are in a place where you do not have a good sound setup, this is one I would even say watch it with a really good pair of headphones because it does a lot with sound. Yes. I, I, I went to see it on after a night where I had not slept. So I was going, like, I, I was on, like, hour 36 of being awake. Okay, so you're a little delirious. It, yeah, and it really messed with me. And yes. the, the funny thing was, in the middle, like, at the beginning of the third act of this movie, I took a really long blink, and when I got to the end of the movie, I turned to one of my friends, I was like, okay, what did I miss? And my friend said, this and this and this happened. I was like, did it explain anything? He was nope. <laughs> so um, a woman is um, kind of drugged. Not kind of. A woman is drugged. And in that time, she just hangs out with her attacker. There, you know, you don't really, you don't see anything especially nefarious, anything really deeply disturbing. It, it's just, it's company. It kind of looks like she's just, he's just hanging out with her while she's high. And it's very disturbing in its own right, but at the same time, it's also still very strangely innocent. Like at one point, she's like laughing and eating ice chips. And it's just like, why are you doing that? Why? Why? What, what is? What is going on? And what basically happens is her identity is is stolen, and she's she's ripped off, and she's trying to put herself back together. And as that starts to happen, and she starts to kind of enter that second stage of of trying to put things back together, she um, she runs into somebody else who's had something similar happen, and they're kind of going through this together and trying to put the pieces together. It involves. Walden, the book, it involves a lot of sound, it involves a lot of visuals, water all over this thing, and a lot of it is Amy Simetz being just very disoriented, very um, panicked, very worried, but still just so strong through the whole thing. She's an incredibly talented actor that I really wish was actually in more stuff. So seeing her as cast as Rachel, I was like, oh yeah, let's mm-hmm. do this because I know she's going to be able to own it. Um, and so I wanted to bring people back to this movie that didn't get a whole lot of attention when it played in 2013, but I really think it's something interesting to watch. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Um, I do have another film that I think would make an interesting. Well, now you're just adding movie. on. So I have okay. to. I'm right. sorry. I'm gonna right. just. I'm gonna throw this out real All quick. All right, go for it. Uh, because if we're speaking about films that not enough people have seen, mm. but would be. They would be better off having that in their film library. Okay, sure. Uh, Cemetery Man, De La Morte, De La Mor. I've heard of that one. Tell people about that. That is a film about a man who, he works in a cemetery. And <laughs> the devil, he, you say. Not, not the devil. He's actually quite the opposite. His whole thing is that he's the guy that kind of tends to the graves. He digs the... Uh, the graves for incoming bodies with Rupert Everett. With Rupert Everett, oh my god, absolutely. And 
then it turns out that at night, he's also responsible for killing the dead that come back to life. You have my curiosity, I must admit. It is a fascinating film. Is it now? Is it a drama? Is it like? Is it comedic? It is a black comedy, undoubtedly. Okay. okay. But there are some very psychedelic moments. There are brain. I'm sensing it will a mess trend with your brain. That we're it will. It's. It's also weirdly philosophical. It's a fascinating movie with a beautiful score. Okay. And it's something that not enough people have seen. But I think it would be interesting in the same regard with how do we treat death? Hmm. And how okay. do we treat those who come back? Okay, okay. Yeah, like, I mean, it looks, like, I, I gotta admit, like, it, it looks just the, like, I'm looking at the poster. The poster looks kind of cheap. It, the poster absolutely looks cheap. Don't go by the poster. Okay, okay. Just go by the film. Go into it. It's in English? It's in English. Uh, although... This Italian-France-German production is in English? Oh, it's dubbed. <laughs> okay, there we go. Like, wait a second. You know, I, I know that, you know, the, the world has changed and all, but okay. Cemetery Man. Okay, by, by uh, Michel Sauvay. So, Sauvy. So, Sauvy. Yeah, S-O-A-V-I. Um, <laughs> however, sorry, Michelle. I don't know how you pronounce your last name. Um, it's a great movie, and the thing is, okay. not enough people have seen it, and it's... It's just wonderful. Okay. I My next one is kind of a sexy choice, but I still want to bring it up because anytime I can bring up this movie, I like to because I think that even in while in our circles, it is kind of a modern titan that still not enough people have seen this movie. I thought about going to the Babadook after okay. this movie because I wanted to think about a movie that deals with grief. Now the, Interesting. Ba- now, the Babadook, um, you know, you don't have the grief of a child, which you do have in hereditary. non-genre movies like... Well, in genre movies like Hereditary, but yes. we did an episode about that. But in, even in non-genre movies like Rabbit Hole, you have that as, as, you know, as a theme, which I, I, I really am convinced is a very, very specific type of grief that needs to be explored in art more. Yeah. Because I feel like it's, just, it's something that people just don't know how to deal with, and they need to see it and read it and experience it more to understand it if it happens to occur to them. The Babadook, the grief is for the deceased husband. That, of course, is a little bit more tactile and a little bit more understandable. Um, But it is one of those ones I know gets pointed to as an example of where genre film in this century is just doing amazing things and incredible things and embodying so much about what makes fear so visceral um, that I really think if somebody hasn't seen it by now, and don't get me wrong, it is freaky. It is not a movie that I think, if you're kind of a scaredy cat, you're going to be able to... No, 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 no. This is a movie that is going to mess you up. You know, if you if you think that you're not the kind of person for horror, watch this shit with the lights on. Sure. Um, did you see a movie that came out around the same time called The Canal? I did not. And that is a film that also deals with the grief of the loss of a spouse. Okay. Uh, personally... I think The Canal is a scarier film. Don't get me wrong. I really like The Babadook. I think there is an enormous amount to like about it. I think that the acclaim that it has received is well-deserved. Mm-hmm. I think that it's an important film. Um, in terms of scares, personally, it didn't do much for me. Hmm. Then again, my my life revolves around horror. Right. So well, I, mean, I kind listen, of get desensitized. Listen, this is, this is the, this is the amazing thing about horror. And I brought this up on the last show too, is that it is so very subjective. 
You know, it's the same, it's the same as comedy. It's a, and, and if the success or failure of your film is strictly, did it scare you? You're, you're dealing with something very, very difficult to, to release out into a mass market. Well, that's the wrong thing to say because we see that so much in the horror community. Well, that's the, I know. Where that's, people say, yeah, and that's you know, my it point. didn't scare me, therefore yeah. it's not horror. Yeah, no, but was it good? Was it good yeah. and it scared you? Awesome. Was it good and it didn't scare you? Okay. Still, you know, you That's you still good. Yeah, you got your money's worth. Yeah. Was it bad and it didn't scare Listen, was it bad and it scared you? Hey, it still succeeds. Yeah. You know, it's nuts. It's it's this weird little little thing. I, I enjoyed in Pet Cemetery listening to Rachel's you know, I, I I enjoyed in Pet Cemetery focusing more on Rachel's grief. Sure. Than I, than I did on, on The Fathers just because of the way Amy Simons was playing it. So I kind of would have been... Well, but that's the thing is we we understand why Jason Clark, why Lewis is doing what he does. Do we agree with it? That's a different story altogether. Yeah. But he's a doctor who didn't believe in the afterlife, who got actual proof that there is something else out there and then he loses a daughter and he wants her back. But with Rachel, it's a completely different... She's, I mean, she's the one who believes in the afterlife and wager good money that most of the people who listen to this show have seen The Babadook by now. Um, I, I, One would hope. And if you haven't, go see go The Babadook. Go see it and, and prepare to be terrified because it is a, you know, one of the great films of, of modern genre for sure. And one that I think, as I said, with, with its theme of grief. Yes. And um, even if you're not scared of it, then that's totally fine because... It's still a very well-constructed film, yeah. and it's still a very important film. Yeah. So just because you're not scared doesn't mean it's not good. So I only had the two companion movies, so now we're now we're all on you. Well, what else, I, I, what else I, do you have that, that I, people could I mentioned with? briefly Hereditary. I think that is a film that is directly applicable because oh, yes. it is about a family dealing with the loss of a child. Yes. Um, from there, what happens next is a completely different type of horror film. You go from demonic reanimation to uh, evil witches. Yeah. But hey, you know, you still have the foundation. It happens. And then, simply because you spoke about Bag of Bones and the story of this author who is finding manuscript pages that are wildly successful, uh, have you ever played the video game Alan Wake? Nope. The game opens up with a cinematic and the first two words you hear in the game or Stephen King. Ah. He even says, the main character even says, Stephen King once said, blah, 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 <laughs> as the camera is swooping through a Pacific Northwestern, over Pacific Northwestern lake with mountains on the side and evergreen forests and underneath a bridge to this small, quaint little town that could have been ripped straight out of Twin Peaks. Yeah. It's amazing. And the plot of the game is that it's a writer with writer's block, uh -huh. and he and his wife go to this town called Bright Falls, if I'm correct. And they are there just to take a vacation. And the night that they get there, there's a calamitous event. And the writer wakes up a week later, having no idea what happened in that week, and his wife is missing. And so he goes to search for her. And on his search, he keeps finding manuscript pages that he wrote. Oh, wow. But they are, they prophesize an event that is about to happen. So he'll pick up a page that he wrote and five minutes later like in the game... than fiction. Ten minutes later in the game. Exactly. <laughs> ten minutes later in the game. That event takes place. It's oh, wow. incredibly king while being something kind of unto itself. But if you want to 
keep that king style mm-hmm. and aesthetic going, but you want to interact with it. Yeah, Alan Wake is one hundred percent the way to go. If, if anybody listening to this is a writer of any capacity, his book on writing. Um, is fantastic in terms of how he talks about not just the process but himself and his career and his demons and what he's had to deal with. Um, It's it's fascinating. I think we forget that King, on top of being very prolific and having his hands in so many pies with movie adaptations, TV series, and I think there have been video game uh, connections that he's been directly involved with, I think we keep forgetting that he's genuinely a very good author. Yeah, and yeah. a lot of people seem to forget that because again, he's a horror he's a brand. author. In, in he's a like very yes. much. He is a brand. The same way that John Grisham is a brand. The same way that J.K. Rowling now is a brand. Yes, you know he 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 and the way that their their works have been adapted into other media. Absolutely, but that's not a bad thing. With King, we have to remember that he is genuinely regarded as a wonderful author. Mm-hmm. So when he writes something that explains, here's how I write. We should take notice. We should, and and I mean, like the the great thing in that book as well is that he 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 takes a lot of time talking about addiction and talks about being yes. an artist through addiction very very candidly, and talks about you know the the links that he would go to, the lies that he would tell, and I, I you know part of the they say about recovery is that you have to be honest and own it and and say that I'm an addict and here's what I have done and he does he's you know he's just owned it to the whole damn world yeah you know and it's it's fascinating to see and to really see that you know you can have so very much you can have a very lucrative career where you are either despised or hailed depending on who you ask and yet you're still reaching for vices mm-hmm. and still creating through this very, very broken time in a life. It's, it's an incredible book. That is episode 220 of the Matt Nacast. I'd love to thank Jonathan for coming by. Come on back on Monday, April 22nd for episode 221. I don't know what we'll be discussing yet. It might be High Life. It might be Teen Spirit. We might talk about Hellboy. I'm not sure. Um, Jonathan can be found on Dread Central. Uh, do you yeah. guys have anything coming up this week that you want to plug? Or you specifically, there or anywhere else? Oh, geez. I mean, we always have some great stuff that we have coming on to Dread Central. Specifically this week, there's going to be a great article by my friend Rafael, who writes for multiple websites, but he's going to talk about the Curse of La Llorona, and he's going to talk about it as a Hispanic man, and his perception of the film and how it dealt with those kinds of themes. Mm-hmm. We have Stephanie, who is going to be writing a new column, Exhuming Tales from the Crypt, where she analyzes the episodes from the Tales from the Very Crypt cool. series. Uh, what else do we have? There's going to be a new column of uh, Matt Donato's Drinking with the Dread, where he gets to take a movie and build his own drinking game <laughs> around it. Uh, it's always a blast. And the one that he's the most proud of is, of course, Doom with Dwayne The Rock Johnson oh, and boy. my man, Carl Urban. And then also last week, we had a phenomenal article by uh, a woman called Anya Stanley. Uh, in her column, Gender Bashing, and that is all about the character of Asami, if I'm correct, that's her name, from Audition, and how she should be seen as a femme fatale. 
Interesting. It's a wonderfully written article, and I highly recommend people I will include a link to that, that in the show notes for sure. Well, thank and you. Uh, if people want to follow you on Twitter, where can they find you? They can just follow me. It's my name, at Jonathan Barkan. Very nice. My site, of course, is thematinee.ca. For more audio content, you can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca slash podcasting. You can also find them on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Stitcher Radio, Blueberry, Apple's podcast app, and the iTunes Store, and pretty much everywhere else where you can find podcasts. If you don't find it there, let me know, and I will put it there. Everything gives you handy ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when new episodes drop. Feedback on Pet Cemetery or any of the other works we described today can be left in the comment section of the site. You can email ryan at thematinee.ca, Twitter, where I am matinee underscore ca, or facebook.com slash darkmatinee. Any final thoughts, Mr. Barkhan? No, I just wanted to say thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. We made a serious dent in that bottle of wine, and I'm sure that the listeners will hear how it affected us (laughs) as time went on. (laughs) Any final thoughts, silent auditor? Am I wrong about anything? More rights. Yeah. I appreciate you staying on brand. For Jonathan and the silent auditor, I am Ryan. We'll see you at the matinee.